0: Welcome to Be There, Done That—a Catholic History podcast with Leanne J. Today we are finally tackling that celibacy episode, and we want to start the episode trying to explain what our purpose is here and what not to expect.
1: What not to talk about yeah. when you're talking about celibacy? Well, we've so what we wanted to make clear is that I guess since we've heard a couple other discussions of celibacy and kind of in prep for this, and and looking at the different aspects of it. We we really are not going to try to give like a theological justification. One, I don't think we're really that qualified to do that. I mean, we know a little bit about it, I think now from having studied the history and from listening to different people, but that's not going to be the point of this discussion. So we're going to get into some Bible quotes, but only at the very beginning as kind of first century sources. And then we're going to get past that and we're going to get into more Church councils, especially Um, some church fathers, but honestly, that it's going to be kind of slim pickings for the first like three centuries for sources, anyway. But we're not going to try to give like a theological justification or theological explanation, and we're going to try to um, just stick to some concrete sources so that you can walk away from this podcast with um, a little bit better idea of what was actually said and done for about the first thousand years. Oh, and that's the other thing is the time frame, right? Mm-hmm. So we're gonna talk about only from the beginning of the church to um, I think the year 1139 is the second Lateran Council. And then that's where we're gonna leave it. That's not the end of the story of celibacy. I mean, there's I think there's a canon on it in the Council of Trent and there's still, you know, all kinds of debates and discussions about it now, but we're not gonna get into the the contemporary, all of that, all, you know, the, the modern like uh, abuse crisis, questions about ordaining women and deacons and married priests and, you know, all the rules for the different types of of, of clergy that we have. So we're not going to get into the modern situation and controversies.
0: So I'm starting us off with um, actually the Jewish practices and um, we read, uh, I read a small chapter from a book uh, discussing the Dead Sea Scrolls.
1: So we're in we're right. You're, we're going to talk about first century Palestine first, and that's going to so anyway. That's going to include the Dead Sea Scrolls people. What are they called?
0: The Essenes. 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 Sorry. Essenes. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the Essenes, which were a group in what's the community again?
1: Uh it was called um, Qumran. Qumran. Right? Yes, you're right. They say I think that they're like pretty scholars are like fairly certain that 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 they were Essenes just from.
0: So the argument usually is that people discuss is that um, that we've seen like maybe one or two other people disputing the celibacy in modern times because they were saying that there's no way that Jesus would have been. What are you saying? Dan, Dan Brown? Can you explain?
1: Yeah, that? that's in, um that's a famous thing in the Da Vinci Code. Uh, the Da Vinci Code. There's a character who says that Jesus could not have been celibate because first-century Jewish men would have been obligated and expected to marry, especially a rabbi. Um, and so, therefore, celibacy is like a later, you know, medieval kind of a you know a imposition on on the history.
0: So the Essenes group is a group that actually was um, thought to have practiced monasticism during this time
1: right
0: uh so uh, the question that was brought up is like how could these how could there uh, be any idea of monasticism and the thing that we have to remember during this time in palestine was that jewish law required you to enter the temple clean now what does that mean that means that you did not you were not intimate with your wife and oh i guess we should have also talked about the fact that if you're listening with children just be forewarned we are going to talk about sex
1: i mean the word sex
0: the word sex. yeah the word sex is going to be mentioned Um. Um, so because you had to be clean a certain amount of days before you even enter temple that would require you to be celibate during that time and these this group of people had the idea of like always being with god and that would require them to be pure quote unquote throughout their life then
1: and they were like weren't they they were like kind of a splinter group that they thought that like the official temple worship at that time was like corrupted or something but they were trying to restore some sort of purified form yes of Judaism and they thought that they were by Isolating themselves in these communities and mm-hmm. doing like more severe purification practices.
0: And if anyone's a melancholic, they totally understand this feeling of like trying to, uh, you know, be as pure as you can for. I'm whatever. taking
1: the rule book out into the wilderness and I'm going to follow it.
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I'm. At, just to say that there are already rules in place of some practices of restraining or. Um,
1: so there's kind of a precedent for this celibacy and monasticism, in already in first century, in the in the Palestine of Jesus' day, and these people exist up until the end of like the, the Jerusalem temple worship and everything. And then there's also the there's another precedent for it with the Levites, who are the like the hereditary priesthood of Israel, and they were also required, like you were saying, to be at least refrained from sex with their wives during their turn of service they would they would take turns and then they could and they could go back to like a more a regular profession but then when they were up for temple service they had to refrain from sex for a while when they were around like the bread of the presence and there's a there's some bible verses like i think there's a, an episode in first samuel that jesus alludes to where david and his soldiers say that they're allowed to eat the bread of the presence because they've refrained from being with women and that's, a, that's the same rule that they're alluding to.
0: Do you want to go into the uh, biblical quotes?
1: Yeah, I guess I... that's a transition. So with that in mind, that like celibacy actually does exist, contrary to the Da Vinci Code in first century Palestine, We have there's just a couple of Bible quotes that maybe you should be aware of as you go into this as a historical topic. So in the actual Gospels, I think maybe a key passage is in Matthew 19, And there's really two parts of it that are key. One part's verse 12, Matthew 19, 12. And Jesus says, he's been disputing about, basically, that you can't divorce, or if you remarry after divorce, then that's adultery. And the apostles' reaction to that is, well, it really sounds like it's better not to get married then. Jesus says, there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. And then a little bit further down, um, Peter and Jesus are still talking about this idea a little bit. And Peter says, you know, we've left everything. Jesus responds to him. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. That's Matthew nineteen verse twenty nine. So the key things in there would be leaving wife or children or fields, and kind of they're they're giving up their home and and this whole normal pattern of of married life, and obviously the eunuchs for the kingdom and him telling you know anyone who can accept this should accept it. That sounds a lot like renouncing sexuality, and actually, I mean really when you read the first passage about being eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven in light of the later part of the passage, it really sounds like with that promise of reward that he's he's recommending that form of life for his disciples. But then also in Paul's letters, we start kind of getting this applied to the real church situation in the first century. So here's some quotes on that. First Corinthians, they apparently have been debating, I guess, the value of celibacy versus marriage. And he said, Paul says to them, Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And on in uh, his letters to Timothy, First Timothy, he talks about choosing church leadership, and this is also a concern that he has in that regard too, about you know choosing people who can control themselves. So Paul tells Timothy that the overseers, the bishops, should be husband of one wife. And in, like, the New International Version, they translate this as just faithful husband. In other versions, they translate it more literally as husband of one wife. And there's a dispute kind of on what, what does he mean by that? Do you have to, Does he mean you should only make bishops people who have demonstrated that they can be good husbands and fathers? Like, they've shown that they can do good at taking care of other people? Or is he saying this as, like, a negative criteria of, like, they shouldn't be someone who's so sexually uncontrolled that they are unfaithful or that they've needed to marry multiple times, which had like a stigma possibly in the ancient world. So that's controversial passage. There's another part in 1 Timothy where he says that it's a sign of false teachers to forbid, forbid people to marry. So you should remember that too. And then a more kind of a controversial but I don't know, judge for yourself. Another passage is Philippians 4, chapter, or, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. And Paul says, he refers to someone as his yoke mate. And the word can mean, the phrase in Greek can mean something like my true companion, or I mean, it could be friend, it can mean wife in Greek. It's kind of a weird, really casual illusion if he is talking about his wife, Paul's wife. Uh, we don't really know. It, it might be that it's somebody's name it might mean that he's referring to a friend it might mean he's alluding to his wife and that his wife is among the philippians we just don't know
0: and one thing i want to talk wanted to talk about in dealing with like the, uh, leaving your wife to follow christ like you're probably thinking like why the heck would i follow this guy if, and leave my wife alone leave her to be you have to remember also the community we're talking about during this time it wasn't just you know it wasn't just you and your wife by yourselves like even to this day from what i i know of from some middle eastern families they live together
1: like multiple generations multiple generations live under one roof an
0: extended family live under one roof so when you left your wife or children it wasn't that they were by themselves is that they had a whole community with them as well um one one good depiction that we have been seeing uh lately I don't know I'm sure this is like a big say it yes <laughs> it's a, a big <laughs> hype right now but it's um now I forgot the oh the it's chosen called, yeah the chosen <laughs> the chosen uh tv series um it it's so good but you can see the depiction there of like families being together and you see Peter de- depicted as having a wife and that jesus cures his mother-in-law in order to ensure that peter is not leaving his wife alone with an ill mom yeah and so um like once again and you see in in the depiction of the tv series that these people are Among family and a a large community, it's not just them by themselves. And you especially see that when they depict the wedding of Cana, and Mary intercedes to um, to help her family.
1: um, They're supposed to be your friend, right? Or I mean, aren't they? They're supposed to be like longtime family friends. Yeah, tell the story.
0: But it's once again, it's like a community helping each other. It's not just
1: right. And I forgot, I just now am realizing that I forgot to list the actual part in the Bible where you can go and and see the episode of Peter's mother-in-law. But it does refer to her as his mother-in-law, which implies that he was at least, had been married. Doesn't say whether he's married or not at the time of the story, but I thought The Chosen does a really good job depicting the way in which, like, you know, he he actually has a community that presumably he would have left his wife yes. and, and maybe even children. And then answer. that's the
0: same thing once again in even the community of the apostles and stuff. It's not just Jesus and the apostles. It's a community.
1: Right. Going and I mean, with him. And in this passage, he's referring, he's talking to his disciples saying people who have left behind wives and children. So these people he's talking to must, some of them, have wives and children that they've actually had to trust in Jesus and you know, leave for at least temporarily. Yep. And actually while I'm remembering it, so the early church historian Eusebius also says that the Apostle Philip had daughters who were known as prophetesses in the early church. So they were around, I guess, with their dad while he was doing his preaching. I think even today in the gospel reading, or in the, no, from Acts of the Apostles, it talks about Philip preaching in Antioch, but yeah, he was traditionally supposed to have had daughters. Peter was supposed to have been married. Um, some of the church fathers think that Paul was married and that this passage about Philippians with the yoke mate, that that alludes to that. And so traditionally, many of the apostles were supposed to have been married, but also supposed to have been celibate after their call. And that's, that's how the church fathers understood it.
0: Um, one thing, now that we're going to get into the actual church, why don't you read the catechism?
1: Oh, yeah. Okay, so... Before we wade into the really controversial stuff about, you know, what's allowed in East versus West, I wanted to read the two paragraphs from the Catechism of the Catholic Church just so you kind of know what, I mean, I would consider that a good, like, measure of what's like the normal kind of baseline teaching so that you know whether we're getting two out of bounds or not and whatever we're saying. Um, but that if you want to look for yourself, the paragraphs in the Catechism of the Catholic Church that talk about priestly celibacy are 1579. In 1580, Uh, 1579 is about the Latin Church, 1580 is about the Eastern Churches. It says, All the ordained ministers of the Latin Church, with the exception of permanent deacons, are normally chosen from among men of faith who live a celibate life and who intend to remain celibate for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Called to consecrate themselves with undivided heart to the Lord and to the affairs of the Lord, they give themselves entirely to God and to men. Celibacy is a sign of this new life to the service of which... The church ministers is consecrated, accepted with a joyous heart. Celibacy radiantly proclaims the reign of God. That's the end of of, uh, paragraph 1579. 1580 says, In the Eastern churches, a different discipline has been enforced for many centuries. While bishops are chosen solely from among celibates, married men can be ordained as deacons and priests. This practice has long been considered legitimate. These priests exercise a fruitful ministry within their communities. Moreover, priestly celibacy is held in great honor in the Eastern churches, and many priests have freely chosen it for the sake of the kingdom of God. In the East, as in the West, a man who has already received the sacrament of holy orders can no longer marry. And that's the end of the, that paragraph. Now, we're going to get into the church history that results in this situation, where in the West, you end up with an all-celibate priesthood by the High Middle Ages, or at least a, in principle, that that's, that's going to be, become what the canon law is. And in the East, you have a situation where bishops are supposed to be celibate, priests and deacons are supposed to not remarry if they are married at the time they're ordained, but if they're ordained as married men with their wives still alive, they're allowed to still have marital relations with those wives. And that's, that's a situation that also develops in the Greek church, or in the Orthodox church or the Greek churches uh, during the Middle Ages. And from an earlier church practice, which is even more complicated, which we're going to talk about. At least that's what, how the situation seems probably to us after looking at a few books.
0: Yeah.
1: I've kind of told the story then backwards. <laughs> but should we give kind of an overview and then we'll start going through the centuries? Yeah. Okay. So just so you can kind of wrap your head around what this is all going to be, we're going to talk about a thousand years of history going from the first century to the 1100s. Honestly, from after the Bible passages that we just listed off there, it's kind of hard to tell what's going on in the church with regard to celibacy for about 200 years in the 2nd and 3rd century. Then in the 4th century, when Christianity stops being persecuted consistently at least, they start having church councils and laying the foundations for canon law. And that's when we start seeing church councils, like local church councils, giving us canons about celibacy for priests and deacons. Then... As you may realize from our past episodes, for a couple hundred years there, Europe just gets plunged into total craziness, and it's it's a confusing situation, and celibacy appears to have not been just what enforced What I want to preface,
0: well. though, before I, sorry, to interrupt you, yeah, is really quick, is that it's not just Europe dealing with this, which is why you get the chaos of the Eastern Church, too, is that the Eastern Church yeah, is also dealing with it I mean them as own- well.
1: We'll get into that.
0: Yes, but the Eastern Church, you know, connects not just Europe. It's like Asia and Africa. Okay, that's fair.
1: But, I mean, so in the Western Church, there's going to be collapse of the Roman Empire. Eastern Church, they're going to have Muslim invasion and then also Slavic invasions. Also just a ton of, like, civil instability. And so in the Eastern Church in the 7th century, they're going to have a council called the Council in Trullo. Which is going to result in basically the current rule that they have now, which is that bishops need to be celibate, which is maintaining the current their practice traditionally. The priests are going to be allowed if they are married already to have normal marriages with their wives, like sexually. If they um, and then the, if they are married and their wife dies, they're not allowed to remarry after they've been ordained. In the West, um, there's going to be still lots of instability and, and confusion and eventually a reform movement's going to develop in the high middle ages resulting in the opposite solution to the problem where the western church is going to say at the second lateran council we're not going to ordain married men anymore we're we're going to crack down on the church being treated as a family business and they're going to enforce celibacy um again it's a for them they're enforcing canon law that's been on the books since the 4th century and trying to to solve widespread clerical marriage and and simony and corruption and all kinds of stuff. So that's kind of the big picture is that this was they had a difficult time enforcing this, but it also seems to be a very old rule. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. I would agree with that. So now you wanna we've we've talked about the first century, um, and now we're getting into the really early church fathers, like the second and um, third century. There's just a couple quotes from the books we were reading that aren't too helpful, but I'll just point you to them. In the 2nd century, Ignatius of Antioch, in the letter to Polycarp, this is really early in the 2nd century, like 107 A.D., says that if someone is capable of passing all his days in chastity in honor of the Lord's body, let him do so without boasting. For if he boasts of it, he is lost. And if the news gets beyond the bishop's ears, if he, um, which maybe can be interpreted as if he believes himself superior to the bishop, it is all over with his chastity. This isn't a very helpful quote. I mean, it just says that you've got people in the early church who are trying to be chased. that's you know wow, as they say in chosen, get the papyrus
0: <laughs> no, but I think it it goes it goes in in accord with the Jewish laws as well like in in early Christianity as well, you do also see rules in in the early church about.
1: About purity, about yeah.
0: purity as well.
1: Um, and there is even I didn't. I, this isn't one other one I wrote down, but even Paul talks about that even married couples should separate for a time for to focus on prayer. Yeah,
0: and yeah. They, and w- there's once again there's rules um, during this time for married couples to not be intimate or not have sex. You know, mass like or, in
1: anticipation of. Oh yeah of celebrating Mass. So they yeah. But you can see how this quote, like it, it alludes to a practice that is more than just, I think, chastity because they're talking about it reaching the bishop's ears or becoming a, a thing that you lord over your bishop. I, I think they're talking about something like a more permanent state of life just from the context. But it's also just, it's very vague. We don't know.
0: Yeah, and we're, I just want to bring up too, since we're talking about this early time, is that St. Patrick too was, we were discussing this Um, Yeah,
1: but remember, he's a 4th-slash-5th-century person.
0: I don't remember the years.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's so... I know we just
0: did it not that long ago, but baby number three.
1: But also at the same time in the 2nd century, we know from, like, a letter of Polycarp, he mentions a married priest whose name was Valens. We don't really know anything else about him. And then there's also an anonymous married deacon who is mentioned by Irenaeus of Lyon. Um, whose wife was said to have committed adultery. That stinks, but he gets uh, alluded to in a random you know, passage. So we know that there's these married clerics out there. What we don't know is whether they are continuing to have children after they've been ordained, or if they are living celibate lives. We just don't know. Third century, pretty similar situation. We know that there's some married bishops that Eusebius mentions, um, one's named Caramon and one's name's is Demetrian, but again we just don't know what was happening in these people's private lives. We don't have detailed biographies or records of whether they were having children after ordination. There's a passage from Tertullian, who's a, a pretty famous apologist from this era, that says, he's, he's writing to a friend exhorting him to, to be, live a chaste life, and he says, how many men and women among the continent are to be found in the ecclesiastical orders? Who re-established flesh in its dignity and who already proclaimed themselves sons of eternity, killing in themselves the concupiscence of the passions and all that could not have access to paradise. So he's talking about, look at all these chaste people who are being recruited for the clergy. We don't know, does he mean only the chaste are being recruited recruited for the clergy, or is he just saying, look at how many of that type of people are ending up in the clergy? And we just it's a very kind of ambiguous. But um, we also know during this third century, this is when monasticism in earnest is really going to start to take off, uh, with Saint Anthony of Egypt going out into the desert and for apparently decades. Yeah, and this is what I, and,
0: and I want to point this out that it, this is in Egypt, yeah. where it's part of the Eastern Rite.
1: Yeah. The, so these are Eastern. I mean, in monasticism, he's going to kind of set the the pattern really for Eastern monasticism too. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Um, but I mean, it's kind of worth pointing out that what what's going to happen in the fourth century, the explanations that are going to be given for celibacy, really don't, in my from what I read, they don't seem to hearken to monasticism. They hearken more back to the mentality of purification that we made on mentality but the the idea of purity and worship that it, it goes back to the Jewish roots of Christianity so for what it's worth that's going to be more of the story we're going to tell. Fourth century though like we said that's when we really start to get some explicit statements from the councils about clerical celibacy. The earliest one that scholars talk about is the Council of Elvira which I think is how it's pronounced. Maybe.
0: No, it's Elvira. Just kidding.
1: Elvira from TV. Uh, so Canon 33 from the Council of Elvira, which is around the year 305, says, It has seemed good absolutely to forbid the bishops, the priests, and the deacons, i.e. all the clerics, in the service of the ministry, to have relations with their wives and procreate children. Should anyone do so, let them be excluded from the honor of the clergy. So they're saying you got to be celibate once you've been ordained, even if you're married. And that's you know, there's 305, so it's not like we've had a ton of Romans come into the church. This is before the conversion of Constantine. This is just when they, they have some breathing space, they're going to try to crack down on some disciplinary issues, and this is what they say about their practices. And these are people who must be 3rd century Christians, who are steeped in earlier traditions, who are, who are putting this down as a rule that that they think should be followed. I think, though, the one next one we should go to is the big council, Council of Nicaea. Okay. So on that one, which I think you read a little bit about, that here's at least the canon, and then we can talk about it. It's canon 3 from Council of Nicaea, which is in the year 325. It says, The great council has absolutely forbidden bishops, priests, and deacons, in other words, all members of the clergy, to have with them a sister companion, with the exception of a mother, a sister, an aunt, or lastly, only those persons who are beyond any suspicion. So, in some translations I see it says sister companion, it says a woman. But this is a, this is a canon about not living with anybody who would cause scandal
0: but yeah with relations basically Um,
1: and what does it mean though
0: in my opinion I think it, it does mean relations like having any intimate relationships because I mean
1: do you think though it's about celibacy even for married priests
0: yes no I don't know
1: for me I think I'm at like a I think it's slightly more likely than not that it's about celibacy but I'm really not sure
0: but it's hard when there there was you know confusion and stuff at the time
1: or at least as evidenced shortly after there definitely seems to be yeah for me um I thought it was really interesting the book by Norman Tanner about the councils of the church said that um at the time, they were concerned about a teacher named Paul of Samosata, I think was his name. Yeah. Living with his female students as, like, disciples. hmm And they thought that that seemed like a bad idea and shouldn't continue.
0: And I agree with that completely. So it, I mean, more likely...
1: Like, it seemed like an adequate explanation of the canon.
0: Yes. It, it, I, I, th- I think they did know the harm in having, you know, one teacher... What have you alone with
1: female disciple?
0: Disciples. That is a little dangerous. Um,
1: yeah, I think definitely that's a rule they should have. I the reason why I think that it could be about celibacy and that it, and for me, maybe I'm leaning towards yes, it is, is that later councils take up this exact canon's language and then they, on the end, they clarify that they mean, like. And I would have this to agree is about with you, celibacy. too, just
0: because of how, you know, if we're, if we're taking into consideration the fact, once again, those rules of purity, and if Mass is being practiced or... Celebrated? Yeah, sorry. If Mass is being celebrated every day or, like, daily Mass is becoming a thing now, then you would need to have that purity.
1: Yeah. And that's, I mean, and that's what, something that they talk about a little bit... Um, as these these rules get more debated, like with um, or later in the fourth century, there's a guy named Jovinian who speaks out saying that he doesn't see why a life of virginity or celibacy is actually any more any better than living just a married life, and he gets into argument with some church fathers. And I think that this does come out that they talk about the, you know, for the even for the Levitical priesthood, they were supposed to separate from their wives when they went to celebrate um when they went to worship you know in the temple and that for the christian priest who is now doing that every day isn't it even more imperative that they actually you know follow at least the same
0: standard yes and then like i said remember you have to keep in mind too that this probably would that these rules were not just even for the clergy it was for the lay people too
1: right yeah they were supposed to abstain as well when they approached the the Eucharist, right?
0: Yeah, and so that's, I mean, that's what's interesting to me. Like, if you're going to daily mass, I mean, you would have a justified marriage, but
1: yeah. Well, and I mean, there, when you read some of the rules about, like, no, don't, you can't on Fridays and on Wednesdays and on Sundays. And... Yeah,
0: there was. I mean, you know, <laughs> it was we, like you almost we did. have lost a lot of that tradition and a lot of those regulations during this time period that were, yeah. you know, there was quite a bit of abstaining.
1: And here's, um, this is a quote. Just speaking of that, um here's what Saint Jerome says in Adversus Jovinian, which is from the year three hundred ninety three. Of a lay person any member of the faithful cannot devote himself to prayer without setting conjugal intercourse aside. The priest who must offer sacrifice at all times has to pray unceasingly. If he must pray unceasingly, he must continually be free from marriage. I will not deny that married men are chosen for the priesthood. The reason is that there are not as many virgins as are needed for the priesthood. So that's what Saint Jerome was saying against uh, Jovinian, who was saying that this, this rules don't matter. Okay. But um, before we get any further off track, there's something else at Nicaea that we need to address, right? Yes. Okay. This guy's name has caused me nothing but headaches, but I think it is pronounced Paphnutius. Do you agree?
0: I don't agree. Okay. I'm just kidding. I don't know how to pronounce it. So.
1: Well, here's a portrait of Paphnutius as handed down by the 5th century Byzantine church historian Socrates Scholasticus. So he says that Paphnutius is this hardcore Egyptian confessor of the faith who had had an eye gouged out during the persecutions. And Constantine so reverenced him that he would like kiss the empty eye socket. And this guy was supposed to just be awesome. But he's celibate. But he shows up at Nicaea. And when Canon 3 supposedly is under discussion, which is the one we just read about um, women not living with clerics, um, supposedly the council proposes to explicitly say that priests and deacons and and bishops must all be celibate and not not have children with their wives and, and separate from the wives and stuff like that. And the story is that Paphnutius stands up and says, basically, let's not lay such a hard rule on all the clergy. It's not easy. That wouldn't be easy for everybody to follow, and it would cause temptation. And, um, you know, marriage is a good thing. Let's not dishonor the marital, marital bed, something like that. And at all the, you can, you know, Council of Nicaea Fathers sort of nod and say, yeah, Papnudius said a wise thing. Let's just stick with this canon three that we drafted and, and leave it at that. So it, it gives this gloss to canon three when you read it, where you would think, if you know that story, okay, so they stopped short of requiring celibacy, so this must just be about you know, just what it says and nothing more. Yeah. Did I describe the story? No, thank you. that's, yeah. that's the, accurate. The problem is that the story may not be true. So the Socrates in the 5th century, I think he's writing, he's the only source for this story, and the earlier sources, who so we do have you know we have witnesses like athanasius who were there they don't talk about this episode they don't and actually the lists of the people who are at nicaea usually more often than not don't include paphnutius at all it also it appears that in the like the doc the textual history of the story that paphnutius gets kind of promoted to being a bishop and that more and more kind of details get added on to make him sound more credible or more awesome As the story gets retold. So it has, it just seems that the story probably is not accurate, especially since in the fourth century, you know, we've already read a couple examples of, or we read at least the Council of Avira, but there's other examples of that being the rule in the East, um, where supposedly Paphnutius is from. And yet we have Paphnutius saying something that sounds a lot more like a later rule that's going to come. Um, which all makes this story kind of suspect. Plus, if you believe that canon 3 isn't even about celibacy, that it's just about Paul of Samosata you know, living with his students, then it makes it really unlikely that this speech ever happened. Yeah. So, but it's actually exerted a lot of influence on modern debates about celibacy, but it apparently didn't come up very much in debates about it until, like, later in the Middle Ages. So, Paphnutia's story you should be aware of, but it may not have happened.
0: Yeah. Darn these resources.
1: I know, it's really confusing church history. They, I mean, is not, like, lost in the mists of time, but it's interesting that this whole thing may have happened, may not have happened. We don't know.
0: We do know for sure that St. Nicholas punched people, though. I'm just kidding. Yeah,
1: because he, <laughs> he had, like, a broken nose, his skeleton does. <laughs> oh, and uh, it's uh, worth mentioning, just since we had had an episode on St. Patrick, you know, at the end of the fourth, or yeah, the end of the fourth century, beginning of the fifth, we know that Patrick, his father was a deacon, married deacon, and his grandfather had been a married priest. But again, we don't know if those children were born before ordination or after. Could have been after. We just don't know. Yeah. In violation of the rule, that's like discussed at Council of Elvira and other councils. But now we're kind of getting into where it's going to split, where there's yeah. going to be a parting of ways like mm-hmm. with the East and West. Yep so
0: council Julio,
1: right so meanwhile now you as you mentioned the west is under pressure and the east is also under pressure
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there's also been the arian crisis and some other schisms that are going to happen um, and there's a lot of tension between east and west so as we know the barbarians are in the west overthrowing rome settling down into like the provinces and gaul you know creating what is now like spain and france In the east they're also having invasions, even though we think of the Byzantine Empire as sticking around a lot longer. They've having Well,
0: I mean, don't forget that Spain and Portugal also deal with their own
1: Yeah. I was saying and they're gonna have to deal with some of the same stuff the Byzantines do. They're gonna have barbarians come from the east and then they're gonna have Muslims come up from across the Straits of Gibraltar and from Africa. Mm -hmm. The Byzantine Empire is also gonna get hit with Muslim invasions and also Slavic invasions from the from the other side so and then meanwhile they're like really unstable so during the 7th century um, they have an emperor named justinian ii who's named after the really famous justinian he's kind of crazy and he's young and inexperienced but he decides he's going to have this council to kind of reform their church because they're dealing with all kinds of different problems with like pagan traditions and also clerical scandals apparently because what they're they're going to have some canons that are about priests and bishops, marriages and and concubines and stuff like that,
0: which would follow once again like the pagan. You know, if you have concubines and stuff, and
1: yeah, I mean they're it's yeah they're living like yeah like non Christians in, mm-hmm. in some instances, and they want to understandably they want to kind of lay what down wanna firm. What I want to rules.
0: say really quick though to preface all of this is that we have to remember during this time because there's such turmoil. There isn't, like, a seminary that you go to.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a good point.
0: Um, there isn't... Uh, There's
1: zero formation.
0: Yes. And so sometimes some of these people who are... Um,
1: Outside of, like, monastic are, communities. Yeah,
0: who are... Yes, but some of these um, priests or or bishops and th- things like that are, are appointed more by the community. So it could be either the community itself or it could be like in the, the feudal system feudal yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the feudal lord
1: yeah and i mean augustine talks about like people being basically drafted into the clergy by like a mob and you didn't really have a choice i mean you, i guess you would run away but like you're being told you're you're not you're not discerning a vocation than going to seminary for 10 years you're being told you will become the bishop
0: so you have to understand that this is why it's Although this stuff is such a mess and the, and there did have to be clarification.
1: Yeah. I mean everything's a mess. Like just in the second I just mentioned I have to say this. He had his nose cut off when he was overthrown, and then he comes back, and then he gets overthrown again. That's how unstable
0: Yeah. the Byzantine
1: Empire is at this point. Um and I also just like that gratuitous detail. But anyway, so, Council in Trullo, they're dealing with, and it's called the Council in Trullo because Trullo is this big domed room of the palace, I guess, where they had it. Kind of like the Lateran Council is named after the you know, the place in Rome. But the Council in Trullo is also called the Quintisext, which is because it's a continuation of the Fifth and Sixth Councils. The important canon that it lays down that we're going to talk about is Canon 13. It's really long, so I'm just going to read the first, like, two or three sentences. It says... Since we know it to be handed down as a rule of the Roman Church, that those who are deemed worthy to be advanced to the diaconate or the presbyterate should promise no longer to cohabit with their wives, we, preserving the ancient rule in apostolic perfection and order, will that the lawful marriages of men who are in holy orders be from this time forward firm, by no means dissolving their union with their wives, nor depriving them of their mutual intercourse at a convenient time. Wherefore, if anyone shall have been found worthy to be ordained subdeacon or deacon or presbyter, he is by no means to be prohibited from admittance to such rank, even if he shall live with a lawful wife. And uh, it kind of continues, they gave some justification from scripture for their their opinion. And also, they thought they were following a collection of apostolic canons that had been published a few centuries earlier, and they weren't aware that it wasn't literally apostolic. Um, and it talks about not separating um, from your, your wife when you were ordained. It doesn't necessarily say anything about sex, but they, they're interpreting this as as their tradition as well. They have good reasons for, for, for stating this rule. I just want to say that, um, it, it, in other words. But obviously, they're taking a pot shot at the Roman church, and the story of what happens next is that Justinian II sends these canons, among others, to the Pope to and says, sign off on these. And the Pope at the time, who I think was named Sergius, says no way, especially because of some of the anti-Roman statements in there about um, his authority that are in other canons. And Justinian then tells his soldiers in like Ravenna to go arrest the Pope. They refuse. And it's all about these canons of, of Trullo, which are really important for the Eastern Church, but just weren't going to be accepted by the western church during such a divided crazy time okay so that's the council in Trullo, which is actually like foundational for eastern canon law yeah. apparently um in the west things continue to be not okay really it's not that they have this rule and that they're sticking to it in the west really well they have the rule and they're not doing a very good job it's important to remember that so as lily was saying you have situations, especially like in Western Europe, where the feudal order is taking root, where you have lay people lords who are like founding churches and appointing the priests. And if you think mm-hmm. of, if you read like Jane Austen novels, you can see this continue, like when the you know this second son or something expects to inherit the vicar you know job. That, that's a that's I mean, this Mr. type Collins of
0: thing. Mr. Collins got his. Uh,
1: yeah, exactly. I mean, that's like literally
0: kissing butt. So.
1: Yeah, and that's the whole dispute with the other, uh, the other guy. The, the one who becomes a soldier who's the bad boy in Pride and Prejudice. He, was, he complains about not getting the, the vicar job, right? Yes. So wasn't that part of the story? Wickham. Yeah, Wickham. Yeah. Yeah, that guy. Mr. Uh, Wickham. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, that's, that's exactly, though, the type of thing that's going to start happening yes. in the Middle Ages.
0: And once again, this is like the Western church's dealings of this kind of stuff and the eastern church has a whole separate
1: they yeah they have a different different issues they're also dealing with like another canon i didn't read from trullo was about they expect bishops to be celibate and to separate from their wives and i mean the wife will be taken care of but they want they have a little bit higher expectations for bishops and they continue to struggle throughout the middle ages with actually enforcing that um so it's not perfect there either but in the West you get this situation where the feudal lords are becoming really involved with the church and there's also just a lot of corruption like um
0: and I personally I mean you kind of see this throughout the all of like the all Middle church,
1: Ages yeah, Middle all Ages. Of I mean history. you
0: have like the Borghese family, the Medici's.
1: Well yeah, towards the Renaissance is, Yeah,
0: I mean you uh, have just, you have
1: <laughs> Yeah. I mean, yeah. Did you say the Borgias? No, and the Borghese. Were the Bourgesses that
0: bad? I don't I know. So.
1: But the um, but anyway, yeah. For you'd... sure,
0: the Medici family.
1: But anyway, with the um, the issue becomes quickly that like you have father son dynasties of of clerics in some places, and they're treating the church property like their property. Maybe they're accepting or giving money in exchange for doing their jobs or for their positions with like the local lord. And this, it all gets wrapped up in a big package of, of reforms that, the, of problems, I mean, that they're going to solve with these reforms towards the end of the Middle Ages. Um, well, kind of towards the middle, I guess the late Middle Ages. I don't know how you would say it. The high Middle Ages, that's the word. So it, we call it the Gregorian reforms after Gregory Seventh, who becomes really famous as the big promoter of, like, papal absolute monarchy. But really, it starts with Leo the IX. And um, I think it's Innocent II second at Second Lateran Council is going to be the canon that is kind of taken as the, the important one. So Second Lateran Council happens in 1139. And it has a couple canons that deal with this. I'm going to read Canon 6 and Canon 16. Canon 6 says, We also decree that those who in the subdiaconate and higher orders have contracted marriage or have concubines, be deprived of their office and ecclesiastical benefice. For since they should be and be called the temple of God, the vessel of the Lord, the abode of the Holy Spirit, it is unbecoming that they indulge in marriage and in impurities. And Canon 16 says, It is beyond doubt that ecclesiastical honors are bestowed not in consideration of blood relationship, but of merit. And the church of God does not look for any successor with hereditary rights, but demands for its guidance and for the administration of its offices, upright, wise, and religious persons. Wherefore, in virtue of our apostolic authority, we forbid that anyone appropriate or presume to demand on the plea of hereditary right, churches, prebends, deaneries, and they keep listing stuff. Basically you can't come and say, I've inherited this job which is they're trying to crack down on father, son, dynasties of of priests and bishops.
0: Um so that's what we have. Uh, we I did like a further like just simple quick internet search of making sure that all the eastern churches really follow this from like the maronite rite to the syrian rites.
1: follow the, the which one the, like, like the, the byzantine yeah.
0: yeah because i think when we talk about eastern rites, most i mean sorry the eastern church most people think of just the byzantine rite. and i think
1: most people might think we're talking about just the eastern orthodox church but there's actually a byzantine rite within the catholic church which is also influenced by this rule yeah right yeah. yeah
0: and so the only one i couldn't really get too many answers on was the coptic rite. but for the most part it seems like the eastern churches do um the eastern rites do follow the same
1: they do the married priests yeah and allow them to have and have the relations. bishops
0: um celibate from what i've seen so far
1: mm and it's, I mean, it's interesting. I didn't, I had really, I feel like Council Trullo Trula was almost like the most important church council I've never heard of before this.
0: Yes, I would agree. Um, and we, I mean, we did this all for me having some trouble, you know, fully, I i just had to come in to terms with the scandals that happened. And so that kind of spurred this. You just had questions about yeah. it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so this spurred this, spurred this uh, question for me.
1: I mean, I think it's just important to remember that these rules are allowed to develop over time, and that's just history.
0: Yeah. And and like I said, it was nice to see that there already were even Jewish laws about purity and, and yeah. things like that. And
1: and if I didn't say this, I kind of my thought going into this was that we were going to find that basically. You had married priests, and then monasticism becomes a big deal, and then we start having celibacy because of the high prestige of monasticism. And it actually, I think that the learning about the Jewish roots really made me think, made me more convinced that this actually is an apostolic tradition and not a later thing.
0: Yes, I agree with you on that completely. And it, it's, um, do we want to bring back... Those rules, I don't know. I,
1: I think there's a reason why both the Lateran Council and Trullo had, one way or the other, they decided they were not going to continue having married priests who try to be celibate. No,
0: I meant I meant for us in marriage, even oh. for the lay people.
1: <laughs> oh, as far as... Yeah, you got to give it up on Wednesdays, Fridays, Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. We'll uh, see. That's, yeah, we'll see.
0: <laughs> um Anyway, we hope you guys are doing well and staying safe during this time and that this podcast is somewhat of a good little mental break Mental break of everything else. Um, until next time, stay cool, San Diego. What does he say?
1: He says you stay classy, San Diego. Oh,
0: yeah. Stay classy, San Diego. <laughs>